So, God told you to write a book. Now what? Hi, I'm Wendy Jo Serna, author, narrator, wife, and mother. I've written and published two novels thus far without really having any clue what I was doing. All I knew for sure was that I had heard from the Lord that I was to write a book. Beyond that, it was all just one grand adventure of faith and a lot of work. And along the way, I learned a few things, things I'd like to share with you. If I can do this, you can do this. You can write your book. Hey, if the author and finisher of all things told you to do it, he believes that you can. And so do I. So come on. Let's write. Hello, authors, and welcome back to So God Told You to Write a Book, Now What? I'm your host, Wendy Jo Serna, and we are on episode number nine. Last time, episode number eight, we talked about the bits and bobs, the extras that add on to the front matter and the back matter of your manuscript, things like author bio and acknowledgments and dedication page. And I spent the bulk of the time talking about the about this book in my book in particular, but that will be something you might want to add to your manuscript as well before you publish. I also, I forgot to talk about the copyright page, so we'll talk about that a little bit today. And I might clean up a few misconceptions about some of the things I spoke on last time. And then we're going to talk about the about the setting page, which I'm excited to share with you today. So first, let's talk about where to start. Okay, so last time I told you about some of the contemplations that are at the origin of this new book, The Blessings of a Thousand Generations. And I told you that I contemplate sitting in the generations and imagining them blessing me, me turning around to bless them. And afterwards, I thought, hmm, maybe some people might think that I am into some kind of weird necromancy, talking to the dead or worshiping my ancestors or some of those kind of Buddhist sort of practices. And that is that is not the case whatsoever. But for those who have not been exposed to some of the ways that I interact with the spirit, perhaps that was a little uh, confusing or upsetting to you. So let me just give a little bit of a biblical background of where I come from in exercising that kind of spiritual interaction. First of all, there is scriptural basis for interacting with the great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 12 calls them. When Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that he is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and that his face shone like the sun, right? And his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. So here are those who have gone before that are no longer living on the planet, and they show up, and not only do they show up, but they interact with Jesus speaking to him in front of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. A very amazing and miraculous moment, but I think it, it allows us, it opens, a doors, it opens a door for us to say, is that something I can do? If Jesus can do that, can I do that? Question. Another scriptural 
reference that I like to use is uh, uh, when Jesus is talking to, he's being challenged by uh, a group called the Sadducees. They were a, a, a religious group in his uh, biblical times who did not believe in the resurrection. And so they would come to Jesus with these hypothetical questions, and he answered them pretty plainly. He said, you are badly mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And he says in, I believe it's in Mark, he says, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. That's a pretty strong rebuke. In Matthew, when he's talking about that same interaction with the Sadducees, he, um, no, it's in Luke. Let me get my gospel straight. In Luke, where he has that same interaction with the Sadducees, Luke adds that Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all are living to him. So for us, death is sort of this final exit from the planet where we no longer see people, we no longer interact with people, we speak of them as they are dead. But God says, to him, they're all alive. They've simply relocated to another location, another realm, the heavenly realm, or wherever they're winding up, that they are still very much alive. So can we interact with them? That That is the question. And if we do how does that work? I don't know for sure. But I do know that in Hebrews chapter 11, where it speaks about all the great uh, people of faith who have gone before has, beforehand, starting with Abraham and on down through the generations before Christ, before the disciples, and it speaks of all their exploits of faith and their martyrdom and, and these amazing ways they lived. But at the end of that chapter in uh, Hebrews 1139, it says, all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So that interconnectivity of generations is a, is a God-promised sort of thing, that we are supposed to be, have a continuity of faith that runs through the ages. And I like the way the message, Eugene Peterson wrote those same verses. Um, He says, not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole. Their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. In the very next chapter, in chapter 12, it starts with these verses that, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blaze the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we better get on with it. That's the way Eugene Peterson says. The way I memorized it was, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. But what are witnesses if they're not those who are watching us, Eugene Peterson says, cheering us on. I don't know. I don't have all the answers for that, but I am willing to contemplate the bigness of God 
and the wonders of the heavenly and the earthly, his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think we're supposed to have some interaction, but that's just where I'm at. Wanted to explain that a little bit for you. All right, on to some further bits and bobs. The copyright page in your book is probably going to appear in the first or second page prior to your storyline or your memoir beginning or your table of contents, which let's think about that. I haven't even spoken about table of contents. I have chosen in my books not to put it in. And I think in most fiction books now, you won't find a table of contents. That's not always true. And if you want to include one, certainly that's something to think about. It also might be a way for you to, as you're writing, would help you have places to put things. If you make your own table of contents and you you know, okay, chapter 12, I need to clean that up a little bit, or what did I put in chapter 20? And so having that is probably, I have it on just my navigation pane on my Word document, but I don't put it in the front of my book when I publish it. I do think that most nonfiction books have tables of content. So for you who are writing memoirs or educational or something like that, tables of content will need to appear in the front matter of your book. But before that, you'll need to put a copyright page. It's not that big a deal as far as how to do it, but it is important that you have it there. It protects your intellectual property. So what does that include? It's very, you can go look at them and read some. They're not super complicated. People who've had multiple editions and multiple publishers and all that might have a <laughs> a little more complicated page, but mine is pretty simple. I just have my, the title of the book, like the agreements, and then I write copyright with the little copyright symbol that you can find in the symbols section, insert it from your Word document. And then I put the year that I published it and my name, and I, and I, put in there all rights reserved. Then I've written in my first two books, I write, this is a work of fiction. Any similarity to persons living or dead is not intended by the author. The places, incidences, and circumstances portrayed are the product of the author's imagination. Now, in my next book, I need I may need to reword that a little bit because I do have some historical references to people and places in there. So I'll have to think about that, make a little addendum there. Also on the copyright page, I put a credit to the cover design and put their name, just put cover design and the name of the person who helped me do that. And then at the bottom of the page, I put in my ISBN number. And that's it. That's the copyright page. For me, it appears on the left-hand page prior to my dedication page. That's where most of them are, but not always. Look with eyes to see other books that you've read or that you've admired or authors that you admire and see how they do it. So there we go. That's the copyright page. You might want to think about a table of contents as well. The thing that I've spent time on this week was writing about the setting of this upcoming book because, like I said last time, it's a particular setting that is close to my heart and my family's heart. Again, this book is set in the northern woods of Minnesota. Uh, now, why is that? Because the north woods of Minnesota, I love the north woods of Minnesota. I grew up there, went to high school there, parts of college there. My family has been in Minnesota for 
since the early 1900s, actually probably some in the late 1800s on the on my mother's side. So my first book, The Baby Catcher Gate, was also set in northern Minnesota. And for those of you who read the first book, there are a few of those characters who do show up in this third book. It's not exactly a sequence or sequel or serial, but there are some characters that you'll recognize if you've read The Baby Catcher Gate. So why do I go to the Northwoods? Because my family settled there. My grandparents, actually my great-grandparents, settled there, uh, came from Norway in the year 1900. My grandmother, Johanna, was seven years old at the time. She was born in Norway in 1893. She and her parents and a bunch of siblings came to Minnesota. My great-grandfather, Peter, had come and gone to North America several times. I'm not quite sure why. I think he had a bit of wanderlust. And and it was not a day and age where that was an easy thing to do, but he did it several times. And so some of my ancestors in, in that family were born in America and then went back to Norway, and some were born in Norway and came back to America it's it's quite an interesting trail to follow. But my grandmother, Johanna, born in Norway, came to America in 1900. They settled up in Beltrami County, where Bemidji is the biggest town. And they settled in particularly by two very large lakes that are connected by a channel. They're called Upper and Lower Red Lake. And they homesteaded to the east and on the south end of those large lakes. Now, on the west side of Upper and Lower Red Lake runs the Red River Valley, which is some of the richest farmland in in the whole world. And settlers who settled there and started farms had great prosperity. Uh, It was wrangled from the hands of the Ojibwe tribes and the Dakota tribes in that area, by the people of Minnesota, North Dakota, those areas, and and given to homesteaders. Some of those treaties, pretty interesting to read. But my great-grandfather came not to the west side of those lakes, but to the east side, where it was not rich farmland, but pretty much forests and bogs. Now, they did, <laughs> they did do some farming. Uh, they did lumber work and raised animals and raised hay, I think, was one of the main crops. But farming was a pretty tough go in the swampy, boggy, woodsy land that they settled in. But they came to the area and they built a large home and they called, they named the home Solbakken, which in Norwegian means Sun Hill. And that was the home where my grandmother and her siblings lived, were raised. And when my grandfather, Einar, he came from Norway later on, 1910 or so, and he he came from the same area, the Osterdalen Valley of Norway, which is north and east of Oslo. And a lot of people came from that same valley and settled in northern Minnesota. In fact, I found at my grandmother's home not too long ago a very long photograph that was several photographs put together, and it was this gathering of people, and it was called the Usterdalen Gathering or something. And these were all people that had come from that valley and, and, and immigrated to the United States 
during the late 1800s, early 1900s. And they would gather and just have reunions because they all knew each other. And they were all kind of related to each other some some way or another. So my grandfather, Einer, came from Osterdalen and came up to the northern woods of Minnesota and worked in the lumber camps alongside some of Johanna's family members. And her family sort of took him in because he was part of the Osterdalen family. And, of course... Love was in the air. He fell in love with Johanna, though he was eight years her senior, and she thought he was in love with her sister, but not so. He was in love with Johanna, a beautiful, gentle, lovely woman. And he built a home for them, which was just down the road from Solbakken. Many of my grandmother's siblings also built homes in that area, and her cousins and various others from Usterdalen who came to that area. So the home that Einer built is just a few miles down the road, and it right between her sister Hannah's home and her sister Tora's home, which were easily walking distance from her house. And this home was the place where I went to as a child. Now, unfortunately, my grandfather Einer died long before I was born. My, in fact, my dad was only three when his father died. So How my mother, grandmother, actually made a living, I don't know what she lived off of in those Northwoods, because to call their 40 acres a farm is a pretty generous title. I think that her cousins and brothers uh, helped her do whatever farming she could do. And my dad has several, a couple of older brothers, but they went off to World War II and um, did did come back. But I I don't know what she survived on. Honestly, I think some social security, I don't really know. But she still lived in that house um, until the day she died. She did have to have some nursing care towards the end, but it was still her home. And her daughter, my Tanta Tup, Eva, <laughs> for those in English, uh, she was a school teacher who never got married. And so she didn't live up there all the time, but she came to that, that home up in the Northwoods Uh, often and was there during summer vacations and holidays and all that sort of thing. Often when we were there, Tanta Tup was there as well. And she was very active in all of her nieces and nephews. Actually, I'm the only niece, lots of nephews. And it was wonderful to have her there as well. And to be a part of that extended family community was a pretty special thing. I remember playing out in the barn with my it was a pretty dilapidated barn by then, but there were the, like barn cats with kittens all the time that they didn't really belong to any, but, but they came and went all the time. And, and there'd be various and assorted visitors who would come and drop in, and, and they were always related, and I didn't, wasn't always clear on how that was, but sometimes they had kids and we'd go, you know, tromping through the fields and stuff together. But my grandmother and my tanta, they always, there was always something to feed people with. Even whenever they showed up, coffee was always put on. And then there were little platters of cold meats or uh, flatbreads or homemade breads and jams and cookies and bars, of course. And they always made everything to me, to my young eyes, everything looked so pretty. The little plates that, that my grandmother would put out for special occasions, and anytime somebody showed up was a special occasion, and it happened often. But they were always so quaint and just put out just so. And in the winter, there was always lovely tatted doilies and 
rose-mauled bowls and, and those kinds of things that came from the Norwegian heritage, which, which they came from. So I always loved that my, my grandmother always, we would go um, just out into the out into the fields or along the dirt roads there, and we'd pick wildflowers that in the ditches, and and nothing was too little to be um, com- considered part of the little bouquet that we would take home, and stick in little flower bud vases along windowsills or in the middle of tables, and and those were things that were delighted my soul as a kid. Or she would allow us to go into the trunks that she still had from when when they came from the old country, and there were old clothing and things that they wore and vests, and we would play dress up and those kinds of things, and and so we were very connected to that place. Now it's interesting that place is only about a mile and a half from what is now the Red Lake Indian Reservation, the Ojibwe tribe. Um, is inhabits to this day that that reservation, and it's not far at all from my grandmother's home. But we didn't interact with them very often. Sometimes they came to the store or the school in the area, and other times we would go to the. Um, they would have powwows on the Fourth of July, and they would uh, open up the reservation, and and you could go to the powwows, and my brothers and I would dance with. <laughs> Probably not very well, but we enjoyed that their drums were astounding, you know, reverberated in your chest and, and dancing with them. I remember enjoying that immensely. But the one part of their reservation that we did go to occasionally was on the lo- the end of Lower Red Lake towards where the farm was. And it was this beautiful place called the White Sand Dunes. And I don't know, it's just situated in such a way that the wind blows in a certain way and the waves hit in a certain way and these sand dunes have formed there up on the banks of the river. It's it's beautiful to swim in because there's of course there's no weeds or big rocks or anything like there is in the Pacific Northwest beaches, but and you can go out quite a long ways and swim from ridge, sand ridge to sand ridge and and it's just it's sort of a magical place. Now, I didn't know until very recently when I read a book uh, by Anton Truro um, called Warrior Nation that I discovered that the white sand dunes are a sacred space for the Ojibwe tribe, as they were for the Dakota tribe who occupied that place prior to the Ojibwe. I didn't know that. And I was a little chagrined to find out that we, I don't know that we were trespassing, I, I don't know if my grandmother or her siblings got permission for us to go. I do know that they had acquaintances in the communities around there. They would buy fish from them and that sort of thing. But we may have snuck on there. I don't really know. I didn't I didn't understand at that time. So I was a bit shocked to find out that this was a sacred space for the native tribe who lived there. And so I do include that in my book because of how special it was to me, but because of how special it still is and has been for these people. And I truly, sincerely hope that in writing about it from my perspective, that I do not offend their perspective. I honor and cherish that space and certainly ask forgiveness if we harmed or offended in any way in our comings and goings. It was not an often thing, but it was something I clearly remember doing as a child. 
So that is the setting for this next book. I recognize that not everybody has special places like that where they have fond memories of interacting with previous generations. I know for some people, previous generations are a source of great pain and trauma and abuse and rejection and all of those things. But I can only write from what I know. And I try to write in the storyline. I try to include some of the the challenges of familial uh, interactions and relationships and the difficult choices that are made across the generations and the prejudices and the conflicts and things that force us to make choices that will impact generations that are coming up behind us. So I do include some of that, but I also recognize I haven't had the most difficult life on the planet. I haven't been in the most war-torn or sex trafficked or abused situations. I have heard of them. I have read of them. I have interacted with people who've come from them, but I've not lived them myself. So I am, I am sincerely hoping that I don't offend those who have been from those places and just trying to encourage to think about the great cloud of witnesses and the generations who have gone before us and not only all of their sacrifices and the things that they have done in order for us to live the lives that we live, but also to, to intentionally think on those things of what am I leaving as a legacy behind me for those who come behind me. So there you go. That's the setting for my next book. I hope that encourages you as you write your bits and bobs and the things that need to come at the end and at the beginning of your manuscript. I hope that gives you some things to think about. I sure love and appreciate you. Blessings and peace. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.